We're bringing you this podcast in partnership with our friends at Virgin Money, the home of brighter business banking. Had the idea on the 23rd of April 2013, came back to London, and when I arrived off the Heathrow Express into Paddington, I saw a homeless person with a cardboard sign saying just the words change please, asking for money. Then a couple of weeks later, I went to a Banksy exhibition where Banksy's got this street art with a homeless person with a cardboard sign saying, keep your coins, I want change. And then he had a coffee cup underneath him. And that was it. That was the the sign um, I needed to essentially leave my job after around two weeks and, and set up on this social enterprise journey. Welcome to The Jump, the Virgin Startup podcast, bringing you the unheard stories of the founders behind some of our favorite startups. I'm Ben Keane, and on the podcast today, we find out how young founder Jamal Azel ditched his job in the city to found one of the fastest growing social enterprises tackling homelessness, one cup of coffee at a time. This is the sound of Change Please HQ. We're down in Peckham, South London, at the home of Change Please. There's coffee being roasted in the back, then ground and served behind a counter by the high-ceilinged warehouse office's entrance. And if you listen extra closely... And if you're short, let's go back to coffee now. If you're short, we're coming out at 20 seconds. And they need to be 25 seconds. What would you do? You would you get Corso. Corso? This is also the sound of lives being transformed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ten years ago, founder Jamal Azel was a young commodities trader in the city. An entrepreneur from a young age, he had already founded a couple of businesses straight out of university and was doing well. But then, in his late 20s, he hit a roadblock. I started thinking about my whole value system when I was that age was based on the social constructs of the society that I was brought into. Um, being living in London for parents that were struggling financially, being refugees and, you know, and it was all about money, money, money and, and being financially stable. It was just that that was what I was taught to, to, to value. A series of chance encounters gave him the wake-up call he needed. He quit his job, went back to school and opened a small coffee roastery in Peckham. A year later, using a startup loan from Virgin Startup, he bought a little coffee van and Change Please was born. The initial idea was simple. Change Please would train homeless people to become baristas, giving them stable employment, a place to live, and a path off the streets. Ten years and many learning curves later, Change Please has grown from that single coffee van in central London to over 64 sites in the UK, with 300 more in eight countries across the world and growing. In the UK alone, it supports over 5% of the country's rough sleeping population, all from one small business in South London. As the company has grown, Jamal's built a famous fan base. From George Clooney. Um, I've never felt um, so inadequate in my life um, being next to George Clooney. It was like... To Will I Am. The government doesn't do it. Jamal was doing the work. And I salute you. Thanks, man. You're awesome, bro. And Sir Richard Branson, who's invited him to Necker Island for personal mentoring a number of times. Of course, with homelessness at record highs, the problem Change Please is tackling is vast. With more sites planned across the world, Jamal's only just getting going. We've not even scratched the sides of, of what's possible. And I think the more markets and partners that we speak to, the more 
we, we, we start to change the reality of what we feel is possible and expand our expectations of what we can deliver. I caught up with Jamal to hear how it all happened. Uh, good afternoon, Jamal. And what number coffee are you on this Friday afternoon? Yes, I'm on number six and I am not going to sleep tonight. Uh, but lovely to be here, Ben, anyway. I'll try and number, speak Number six, come on, let, this is the real question, right? What, what's going on to have, having to need to drink six coffees uh, by three in the afternoon? Or are they, you know, the change please they're coffee? Just so, just they're just so good. delicious. Yeah, they're just so delicious that... You know, it's, it doesn't satiate my need to have another one. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of our addictive formula to keep our evil uh, plan of growth alive, to keep making our coffee taste amazing so people get buying I, it. I love the honesty of a so-called social entrepreneur <laughs> straight, straight off the bat here. And, and e- evil for good. Evil is our, for is good. All <laughs> oh, right. There you go, Sergei Brim. We'll flip that. We'll flip that on you. Um, so let's go back a couple of steps, uh, Jamal, which is to the beginning of this uh, evil for good journey. Um, uh, so when was the, if you can think back to when was the first moment where entrepreneurship sort of came into your life? Can you remember that? Yeah. So my, my parents were refugees, um, into the UK from the, the, the war in Cyprus. And, you know, my dad was a chemical engineer. He was super bright, couldn't speak much English, but he got into the traditional job of doing fish and chips in the UK. And, and so entre- I grew into an entrepreneurial family. It was about, um, success for us. And for me, it was a barometer of how much you earn, uh, how much you built. Everything is built from scratch. The, the, the theory of um, being inheriting something and, and growing that, it was just it's completely alien to me. And so entrepreneurialism is, is literally at the heart of, of how I was brought into this world. And I think it, for me, um, seeing the, the struggles and the pain that my parents had gone through to try and make sure that my sister and I had a good education and we went to an amazing private school, which they sacrificed everything for, made me really want to make sure that for me and my family that, you know, funding and money and, and success was really, um, or we were financially stable, essentially. And, and after I left university uh, in Nottingham, I set up a, uh, a business which was uh, quite ahead of its time, almost 20 odd years ago, where we were providing uh, holistic services like yoga, massage, reflexology into offices um, and, um, you know, big corporates where we'd use their meeting rooms and booking rooms and provide things that just are completely standard today. But in those days, it was very, um, uh, it was very alien to people. And, uh, and yeah, I, I sold that business and, um, and the, the small money I made from it, I, um, it's, you know, it gave me a, uh, a bit of breathing space. And then I, I went into... Um, uh, into kind of the sales world, I, I, I realized actually that one of my skill sets was, you know, positioning products and selling it to people and understanding, really relating to people, understanding what they were looking for and, and making sure that I could provide an offer that would work for them. And, and then after kind of three or four years of doing that, I set up a, um, I was, I was headhunted and, and went in to become a commodity broker. Um, and that was, um, great. It was highly entrepreneurial. It was really good. It was, uh, massively in meritocracy where you essentially were creating your own mini business and your own portfolio and your own um, strategy and um, it was highly addictive but at the same time as um, making good money you you're also seeing uh, people struggling losing their homes um, and that kind of financial disparity in society was just really has never been more evident to me and that was really the kind of start of all the um, of all the journey that I went through to kind of 
become a social entrepreneur? Um, let's let's go to, two, you know, a certain bus journey that you were on in Vietnam, age 29 in 2013, which I think was a particularly long journey. Um, tell us what happened on that journey that's uh, that shaped your future. Yeah, in Vietnam, they love their bus journeys and um, you go everywhere on buses. And I was on this 18 hour bus journey going from Ho Chi Minh City up through the centre of Vietnam. Um, it was 2.30 in the morning. Um, uh, there was one seat left on the bus and this American traveller jumped on next to me. I kind of pretended to be asleep so I didn't have to make any small talk because I was exhausted. Um, anyway, he won. We ended up chatting um, and, I, and he said, look, if you're not happy with your job and your life, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life, thinking, you know, um, what's your legacy in the world? Have you left the world in a better place? Who's going to remember you and for what? How's your children going to speak about you when you're not here? Um, and, you know, what's this whole life thing been about? Um, without getting too deep, I started thinking about my whole value system when I was that age was based on the social constructs of the society that I was brought into. Um, being living in London for parents that were struggling financially, being refugees and, you know, and it was all about money, money, money and, and being financially stable, like I mentioned before. And, and if I was born in the Amazon or if I was born a thousand years earlier or a thousand years in the future, then the whole element of humanity and our social constructs could be different. It was just that that was what I was taught to... Um, to, to value and so really boiling down what does what is this life thing about and the more I think about it the more I thought about it on that journey it, it really came down to a range of things one of them of course being have we made the lives of other people around us better have we made this have we contributed positively to the environment to the world that we live in and it sounds so hippie but it is absolutely in my opinion it's absolutely true you know rather than have we what have we taken out of it and what have we left for those closest to us, but have we left the world in a better place for the people coming after us? And, and that was really the pain element. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, if this bus crashed here and right here and now, then who would actually care? Like my family, my, my friends, my bank manager would have to fill out a few forms, my insurance broker would be frustrated, you know? And, and that was it. It was, it was uh, that's life, over. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, we went to this silent tea house in Hoi An, in the center of Vietnam, and it was run by these deaf and mute ladies who came together, who had no, no other opportunities in their village, and they created this beautiful tea house where the only rule was that you had to be silent. Um, you, ordered sign lang you ordered your tea via sign language or these stamps, and, um, and it, I just realized after 29 years, wow, you could do business and good at the same time. And I always saw business as being this for-profit machine, and this not-for-profit part being charity, but there is this space in the middle that's called social business, social enterprise, which I never heard of before. Inspired, Jamal returned to the UK from Vietnam, determined to make a change in his career. I'm, I already was inadvertently supporting people who were homeless by renting the properties that I'd invested into uh, to councils who were subletting those to people who were homeless. And I knew we could do the housing part. I just didn't know how we make it sustainable for people from a job and employment perspective. So I... Uh, and then the idea of, you know, coffee shops and coffee business being kind of high margin and, and that being an opportunity. So had the idea um, on the 23rd of April 2013, came back to London. And when I arrived off the, Padding off the Heathrow Express into Paddington, I saw a homeless person with a cardboard sign saying just the words change, please, asking for money. Uh, I didn't think much of it, but I just it just sat with me. And then a couple of weeks later, I went to a Banksy exhibition um, where Banksy's got this street art with a homeless person sitting out on the street, 
uh, graffitied on the wall with a cardboard sign saying, keep your coins, I want change. And then he had a coffee cup underneath him. And I, like a good pun, um, and I said, wow, I just saw the double meaning in the word change. And I, and that was it. That was the, 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 the sign um, I needed to essentially leave my job after around two weeks and, and set up on this social enterprise journey. You've just sold uh, a thousand more bus journeys in Vietnam, I think, Jamal, with that story. <laughs> or maybe not, because people are like, shit, Sweet that's going to change my... That's gonna... Inspiring bus journey. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to go to Vietnam to, to go launch an impact uh, business career. So, so let's talk about uh, change, please. Uh, what was the MVP and uh, the, what was the gap between the vision and the reality? So the MVP was a little coffee van outside Covent Garden, uh, and just to say that the whole idea behind Change Piece is around finding people who are homeless and rough sleeping and giving people a, a way out of homelessness through jobs and employment. Um, so they're not dependent on the government um, for handouts. And we provide a living wage job. We provide housing in 10 days. We're the only organisation to provide both um, a bank account, therapy support, which is the most important part of what we offer, the therapy, the mental health, counselling, the psychology uh, whether you've been through domestic abuse, sexual abuse, you've gone through a divorce, a bereavement, you're an ex-offender, a military veteran, any reason you, someone's become homeless, if it's all we always tend to see in 95% of the times it's down to some sort of trauma and you have to tackle that trauma. Um, so that's where a lot of our income goes to. And, and, um, and we're fully not-for-profits. All of that, every time we sell a coffee, a bag, or in Sainsbury's or Tesco's or on our website or in... A, on Virgin Atlantic or on Virgin Trains, wherever we sell the coffee, it all goes towards those services. And, you know, the, the starting point of the idea was that we're going to get people off the streets, put them onto a coffee van, and we're going to have queues of people because we're doing something else that no one else is doing. And we launched in Covent Garden, and as soon as all the press went, um, we were looking for these queues of people, and there was no one there. Um, and we were just competing against all the big guys, and it was just one of the most empty moments apart mm. from that bus journey it was like oh, oh dear this isn't going to work um and i remember going out and paying our staff out of my own bank account going to that west and taking money out and paying out my own pocket and i was just like god this is uh this is not good um and, and was that how much of that challenge at the start was down to was it exposure or was it just communicating the value at the, the quality of the product versus the impact which is as you've just shared in the last three minutes is remarkable and yet it's not straight simple. There's a whole education piece to put in there. Absolutely. And it's, it comes down to, again, understanding your consumer, understanding what they're looking for. And we thought, we, we thought that the, um, the, the, the messaging around homelessness was the key part, the key marketing element. But fundamentally, consumers uh, of social businesses won't uh, price, quality and convenience have to be at least as good as our competitors. Um, otherwise, and they won't go out of their way. Only 5% of people will go out of their way if it's more expensive, if it doesn't, it's not a good a quality or if it's inconvenient to purchase. And we're not going to change the world on 5%. So, you know, that was difficult. And we now see the social element as a bonus um, and not as the main reason. And our marketing was all wrong. We had to compete. We're not going to be this destination. And when we started understanding that in our, in our MVP and we tweaked our messaging and we became more competitive and that's when we started to, things started to change, you know. And then you build that. Well, I've heard this with other success, successful impact startups is that once people, oh, you're competing on price and quality, they're like, this is great, service is fantastic. Oh, and this is the business model behind it, and the impact. Then you, you go from a, a happy customer to a loyal fan, right? Is that something, is that what exactly. you're seeing at Change, that, please? Yeah. You then build up a tribe. You then 
maintain the stickiness, they continue buying from you, and you have loyal customers, and they the word of mouth. Um, um, you know, no one's going to recommend a coffee company or any type of product if, even if it does good or if it has a great story, if the product doesn't deliver or if it's too expensive, you know. So, and that word of mouth element is absolutely crucial. Um, so, we only would have learned that if we uh, didn't have that MVP and product. And, you know, we, we were lucky enough to get the money from Virgin Startup right from the beginning as soon as. Literally the last day that we needed to pay the deposit for the first vans, um, we got £25,000 uh, loan and, um, and that, that, was, uh, that made this all, real, all happen, basically. Um, it, it was the, yeah. And you make it, it sound was, it like, the, you know, you just send in an email to Mr. Branson and he hands out the, hands out the <laughs> cash, but getting a 25 grand loan, I know this because I've been a business advisor at Virgin Startup for years and getting a 25 grand loan through Virgin Startup is as, is as much work as getting a, um, going out and raising money later on when, you, when your business has grown. Yeah. How, how was it, it for you? It was absolutely one of the, still to this day, actually, apart from this NHS tender that we did a, a year, last year, it's probably to this day one of the hardest things I'd had to apply for, um, but also one of the most rewarding because it really made me think about, okay, what I expect to be important is not actually, uh, you know, what's our marketing plan, what's our strategy, what's our financial growth projections like it was just apps it made me stop and think and to this day i even tell people who come to me for advice who are setting up a business or looking for mentors maybe this is the wrong advice i shouldn't be saying this but you know i say look if even if you don't need the money go to virgin startup apply for a thousand pounds or 500 pounds and and just go through that business model canvas and the process and get a mentor and it will absolutely transform your business Jamal worked with Virgin Startup on his startup loan application, getting cash flow forecasts and a business plan in shape. When his startup loan application was approved, it was the start of something special. All Virgin Startup founders get matched with a mentor, but not all of them get to be mentored by Richard Branson himself. After we launched and it was in the support of Virgin Startup, um, we had a call from from um, the, the wonderful people at Virgin Unite and Virgin Startup and just said look we've got a competition for somebody to go to Necker Island and receive mentoring from Sir Richard and and um, and would you be up for it and I it took a good four or five months to decide I'm joking um, I was like absolutely I'm in I mean this is four months into setting up a new organization it's like I'm packing my bags right now um, we went and it was just one of the most surreal things um got amazing and mentoring. There was presented change please to, you know, 40, 50 business leaders and Sir Richard and his whole team and, and a lot of his colleagues and George Clooney was there and, and Amal was there. And um, I've never felt um, so inadequate in my life um, being next to George Clooney. <laughs> it was like, you, um, you, you hope that he has some deficiencies in some way. But, and, but you, uh, have better, you have better coffee than him. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Oh, oh, yes, I can't, I, can't, I can't speak about the coffee that he promotes. But just as a human being, like, he's, uh, he, yeah, he was just incredibly funny. And, um, well, you know, yeah, it was just amazing. And, and that, that whole journey was, was just great because, you know, you're in, you're in this little bubble of creating a, a product which you feel is really great. But when you start hearing all the, the reaction of all these amazing people that you've um especially so richard you know that you look up to and they've been partly the motivation why you've got into business and into entrepreneur become an entrepreneur in the first instance then um that gives you the kind of uh the validation to keep going and to think big and to look differently at that kind of solutions and to realize that 
problems can be solved. And, you know, one of the things that he said to me that he says generally to people is, you know, if you, if you don't know how to do something, just say yes and learn how to do it later. And that, for me, is like heroin. It's like, you know, it's just the... Um, the the kind of motivation to trust your and actually one of the things I've learned as a entrepreneur over in and running four or five different social businesses and is there isn't if you're if you're if you're of average level intelligence there isn't normally a right or wrong answer to a solution and it's just making the decision and feeling committed to the direction that you go and it's, it's very often I sit down with our team and, and we can look at the same problem in two different ways and both of those solutions are exactly the same. I mean, of course, if you're, you know, it, it, there's obviously a wrong way to do things, but mostly if, you're, if your head's in the right space, there's going to be multiple ways of, of doing the right thing. And I think it's, it's not getting stuck on which one is the right thing. It's just moving forward and agreeing to do those. That really is the exciting part that gives you the freedom to trust that there isn't going to be something... Uh, that is a problem and you just keep moving forward and, and trusting your instinct and, 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 and meeting Sir Richard and you now multiple times and his team and all the people he's around and, and then other people that were there for me was like, wow, this is something that you can, we can absolutely deliver and, um, and people believe in it and it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to kind of keep going. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, and yet coffee, Jamal, it's a crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy business to go in from like looking from the outside. So it, give us a breakdown of like the you know the the classic coffee cup of um, costs and how since it seems like impossible from the outside that you can find enough margin in there to deliver the impact that you've been able to do. So how were you able to do that? Did it require raising more and more money, or like how long did it take to become sustainable? Yeah, that was the that was the key part really for us. It was about first. We, we initially went and we just started getting people off the streets and saying, we have an impact, this is great, we're doing real, real good. But it wasn't until we became financially sustainable that uh, that all started to turn around. And um, it was, the margin in coffee is relatively good. Um, and we, it's when you're selling wholesale coffee compared to the hot final beverage, it's a comp- two different complete business models. And we, we do both. We do a lot of wholesale revenue, so hence selling into big gym chains and downing streets and um, office buildings and and all over and you know virgin atlantics and that for us is a is a great business model and we reinvest 100 percent of the profits in back into uh, what we do um but the real opportunity for us that we've we exploited was opening retail stores on the high street and that's where we can have provide employment opportunities that also generates new income at the same time so we're then opening new stores with the income and the profit that we're generating also making acquisitions of new companies, um, also um, growing internationally, like we're now in you know, eight countries and, and growing. And it's super important for us to stick to a model. And one of the challenges I had as, as an entrepreneur was your, I have so many ideas and so many kind of, it, it's trying to focus on the areas that are genuine, genuinely working. And when you really understand the parts that are profitable and they have the highest margins and actually have the highest impact levels and the social return of investment. You just have to double down on those areas. Um, and as soon as you start doing that and it works, and that's when we started to grow uh, internationally because we had a model that then worked. Yeah, absolutely. And w- like, tell us a little bit about that, that focus ability because what you've just described, I think, 
uh, for myself and many people is is so often that 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 you know that the, there's a tension, isn't there, between the creative sort of magpie next shiny thing of an entrepreneur, which is a an asset a lot of the time when you're trying to get momentum, create something out of nothing, and so on. But it, on the flip side, it's a danger because you're like you lose focus because you're like, what if we did this? What if we diversified over there? What if we tried something else? How have you been able to stay focused so you're now at a point where you can scale and have that big impact? What are the things that in your, is it, is it habits in your routine? Is it just drinking more coffee? So I think there's two elements to that question. One is staying focused in our business model is crucial because, and then we have teams and departments that run those particular areas, whether it's wholesale, whether it's online, whether it's high streets. Um, but, but also the second part is you've got a skill as an entrepreneur, which where you have an idea and you can convince people to join your team and you, you grow this thing um, that ultimately is successful or not successful. But I don't believe in switching off that gene or that um, part of your psyche that wants to create new and to, 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 to be a magpie and to explore and to be entrepreneurial. Because as soon as I stopped doing all those things, I started not to lose interest, but I, it just became monotonous. And it became operational and it became about structure and it became about, um, you know, black and white things. And it, and it stopped being as exciting. And when I started to give, uh, bring in a team around me, which had the skill set to execute the things that were working really well. And a team that also believed in the entrepreneurial ideas that I was having um, and back to those, um, then everything really started to fly because it meant that... Um, you know, I think all entrepreneurs have a talent and a part of their DNA which allows them to think outside the box and be entrepreneurial and all those great things. And I just don't think you should switch that off. You should, you should double down on the things that work, focus on those, but also create a space, even if it's 10%, 20% of your time, where you allow your brain to be entrepreneurial and to think outside and find new things that excite you. And that, that's how I've been able to keep going after six years. And, you know, whether that's opening internationally or new uh, amazing projects within our team, um, whether it's disruption of how we tackle homelessness differently to anyone else, I, I just, I'm, I'm unable to turn that bit off. And if I turn that bit off, then it's just easier to bring in a CEO that has run coffee businesses and just move on to something else, really. In early 2020, Change Please was going from strength to strength. The company had recently opened a brand new barista training academy in Peckham, had started selling their coffee on Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Trains, and had started to expand internationally with dozens of new sites. Then, of course, COVID hit. We can't, we can't sit here in 2022 and not talk about COVID and hospitality and selling, selling drinks on the street. Um, how have you navigated? You're clearly still alive uh, as a business and an organisation. How have you got through COVID? Yeah, we, I mean, initially, pre the furlough announcement, uh, and I got COVID the week before furlough um, was announced. It was a pretty difficult period where like everything you've built over the last, you know, at that point, four years um, was about to go down the drain. And we also brought on a new cohort of trainees, that 36 people who we now have a duty of care to support, who we can't now, you know, who, who had just come off the streets. We've given them all this hope. And then we go into COVID and you've got money in your bank account and you think to yourself, right, who do we say first? These people that are, have been, been working for us and they've got savings or these new people that we've just brought on who have come off the streets who don't have anything else and now relying on us to kind of survive. And we can't now get them on with job employments and, and we can't train them on sites because everywhere's closed. And um, 
And it, we, yeah, we went from having 72 people in our UK team to, to 12 during COVID. We've now got 360 people. Um, and it's, it's, we've come out of it in a, in a much better situation. Hang on, let's just, uh, I've just got to play those numbers back uh, to check for myself and those listening that they are what you just said. So you had 72 employees pre-COVID. You, you dropped down to 12 and then you're now at 360? Yes, Wow. That, I mean, from a cultural and like operation, human resource point of view, that is an, a massive roller coaster. How have you, and you're a solo founder, right? Solo founder, but part of that was through acquisition as well, um, through an organization that was going through difficult times because of COVID in the same way. Um, and, um, but culture is still is even made more difficult when you go through an acquisition as opposed to bringing people on initially and, and bringing the right people that you've chosen right from the beginning. So it's even more of a challenge culturally to bring those people into your, your team. Um, but it's, um, it's what we really realised is that, and this is again going to be sound really hippie, but you know, we operated on a, through a, an open kind of chakra of love and openness and support and wanting to give as much as we could. And one of the examples of that was, um, you know, all the Nightingale hospitals in the country, we provided coffee vans and coffee businesses, um, sorry, coffee units and, and teams for them to give coffee 24-7 to all the doctors and nurses during, the, uh, during COVID um, when our vans weren't, coffee vans weren't being used. And um, we were then approached by someone at the NHS that said, look, you might not know this, but there's a, a tender going for the coffee contract at the NHS. Thank you so much for supporting us. Just FYI, look into it. You've got no chance of winning it. Um, and we we applied um, for a bit of luck with the government changing some of the, the laws around social value and ratings and contracts. We applied and we ended up winning it. And that was purely because we we did the right thing. We didn't know what else to do. And what, what was part of our DNA and culture was to give and to support and to... To, to show love at every opportunity, and, and that opened the door to to grow even further. And that was a four million pound contract, you know. And it's a great, it's um, a lovely example, uh, Jamal, of like values and entrepreneurialism coming together to make a decision where you don't know where it's going to take you, but but the faith in those two core elements then leading to a really positive impact and then business uh, result. When you when you make that decision, how much of it is gut instinct versus checking the numbers, or is it a mix of the two? Nine for me anyway. It's ninety five percent gut instinct until my CFO shouts at me and said, "Don't do it." Um, so <laughs> and then you ignore him anyway, uh, or anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like we'll find a way. But um, no, it just it, it it's you know when you share the idea of your team, you can sense pretty quickly whether this is the right thing to do or not. Um, even as the words are coming out of your mouth, and you need to kind of think how they're going to react, um, and absolutely everybody was well you know was completely behind this idea and we didn't really know what else to do you know we've got people who are uh employed furlough wasn't covering them we need to give them some sort of social connectedness so they're not sitting in a hostel day in day out and we've got these coffee vans and coffee units that are doing nothing um a mile away from the excel so it was just an absolute no-brainer and i think um it's um e even now for example you know during um, we, we launched these buses uh, on in London, which um, are providing vital services to rough sleepers, um, such as things like haircuts, showers, access to a dentist on board. You know, 15% of all rough sleepers have tried to pull out their own teeth out of sheer pain. Um, a doctor where, you know, someone who's homeless is able to talk about a lump they might have somewhere or a breathing issue or whatever the case may be. And, and you know, uh, over 775 rough sleepers died on the streets in London in 
2019 and I think these services are going to absolutely save lives and that again was out was out of a um, consequence of COVID you know uh, where um, these buses were being made available to us and we took an opportunity and and we we followed what we felt was the right thing to do. Two refurbished London buses are to begin offering help to homeless people in the capital ahead of the winter months. The converted double-deckers will provide everything from healthcare to haircuts, bringing help to where it's most needed. And then we've got big partners on board like HSBC, Colgate, um, and, uh, and they are, and, 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 and now it's also financially viable. So it's really about having the idea and, and knowing that your, your team will help deliver it, execute it whilst... Um, what should come on, come and up this is me. called driving for change, right? Yes, driving for change. Yeah, driving for change. And, Brilliant. Uh, and it, your story and, and the way that you the, the the opportunities that you've seized, the decision making around it reminds me a lot of this um, brand Tony's Chocolonely, a Dutch brand which is all about um, trying to eliminate slavery from the cocoa industry. Um, and and often when I've heard their CEO talk, it's around like, well, we made this decision to partner with our biggest competitor because it would help us move a little bit closer towards solving this problem. Um, is is your is therefore coffee always going to be uh, the core product of Change Please, or is it more a case of whatever it takes to try and make as big a dent in the problem of homelessness as possible? Yeah. So we have a restaurant uh, called Coal, Coal Rooms that one. Um, it's been regularly written about as one of the best Sunday roasts in London. Uh, Foodism said it was the best steak restaurant in London. And again, it has a complete social mission weaved into it, the same as Change Please, where we support people who are homeless as chefs, as waiters, waitresses. Um, we've launched a toilet roll brand called Serious Tissues, which is the, um, or it was, the UK, UK's only carbon neutral toilet roll. Um, it's actually uh, was the first in the UK. It's, we plant a tree for every one roll that we sell. It's carbon neutral, plastic free, no BPAs, chlorines, chemicals. So all of those, whether they're coffee related or not, have social impact or environmental focus at the heart of them. Um, and I absolutely believe that we would never have had such growth at Change Please from you know, zero to a 35 million pound business in six years for Change Please um, if we didn't have the social impact, you know, um, and and not just from a marketing perspective, but it, the way it attracts new talent. Escape the City said we were the third, third best company in the world to work, social company in the world to work for, behind a company in Seattle. Um, and you know the type of talent and people and amazing people that we have joining our team are doing so because of the social and environmental purpose. You know, so um, all of those elements and the ability to kind of tap into a, um, you know, a paradigm shift. I think at the moment of um, social responsibility um, means that we've grown quicker than we would have ever, ever expected. So I'm actually sick and tired of people saying every idea has been thought about, every business idea has been thought about. They, they might have done, but no, not every social business idea has been thought about. What exists from you know, a business or an app that you can disrupt socially or environmentally and, and provide an alternative for? And I think that, for me, is highly exciting. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I, lo I love the, the, the understandable confidence that you come at this with, even though they're huge challenges each time. And on the, on the mission of homelessness and where, where it started for you with Change Please, um, where, where are you up to as a collective of organisations in terms of impact versus uh, the, the bigger picture of, of the societal problem? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, how do I put this? Like, 
pre-COVID, there were 6,900 rough sleepers in the UK. There's now over 11,300. There's There were 480,000 rough sleepers, so 480,000 homeless people in the UK registered homeless. And since um, the Guardian recently said that there's now another 133,000 households that have become homeless as a consequence of coronavirus. Households, not individuals. And on the other side, you've got hospitality... There's a, there's a shortage of hospitality labour in a in, in a way that we've never seen before, um, not just in the UK but across Europe, in the US, um, and um, and big corporates and and partners of ours are, are crying out for um, chefs and waiters and waitresses and baristas. So both of those things, from both a supply and the demand perspective of of, of, of people that we can support, um, COVID has absolutely meant that our, our uh, company is even more important than it was previously. Um, and it just means that we need to be faster and, and, and do more impact quicker in the middle to make sure that we convert people who are wanting to work and can work who are homeless, which we believe are 44% of the people who are homeless, into people that are ready with a six-month track record so that they can go and get jobs as quickly as possible in that kind of that labour shortage. So, um, yeah, it's um, we've never. I think we've never been more relevant in our six years and... and um, there's a huge opportunity for us to do good, um, but um, we just need to do it in, in a right way because, yeah, we can grow and expand, but the thing that doesn't change is the level of authenticity and integrity that we, we show to each individual person. That They're not a number, they're not a... Um, each person has a different pain, a different trauma, a different reason why they became homeless, and, and doing things at, at a speed that they're ready is more important than the demand side that we're getting from people that we work with. Totally. And, and, and the other, I think, probably exciting thing at the moment in terms of de- facing this challenge is there's now a collective group of social businesses that are focused on this, partly inspired, I'm sure, by, by your work. So th- we're seeing more and more of this. Um, my final sort of question I'd love to ask you today is that for those listening, they're thinking, I've got, a, I, I've got the genesis of an idea and a, and a strong feeling that I want to start something around solving a problem. The problem is huge, but I want to start something. I think there's a business model that could work. But it feels overwhelming, especially in the context of all these huge challenges. And, and yet just starting an initial business in anything is so such a big deal. So what, what's your advice to someone who's like, I really want to start something but it feels like a, a really, really hard yeah, thing to do. It's it, 100%. Be vulnerable. Put it out there. Take, create a, a very minimal uh, so, um, um, MVP product and and just see how it works. See what the reaction is. Um, that will either rebuild, give you confidence or it will help you to iterate and develop it. But it's absolutely just, just do it. Just start it. You'll never know if you don't take that leap and it could be one of the most exciting things that you do and if you don't do it you'll, you'll never know you know so I think just taking that step forward for me is is one of the most valuable um lessons that I've taken from change please and the things that we've done um and there are as long as you surround yourself by people that you trust and that can give you feedback then you'll be able to kind of see whether or not it's worth moving on to but even if that doesn't work then then Go down another route and find another option because if you have that entrepreneurial spark and entrepreneurial gene, then fundamentally, if you trap that by working elsewhere or if you do something that you're not happy with, then you'd always regret it. So I think absolutely just take that leap forward, try it, see how it works, learn, iterate, be vulnerable, make mistakes, invite criticism 
And, and, um, but the most important part is, as I said before, understand what is your motivation for doing it. If it's just, oh, this is a good idea, it might, not, might work, it might not work, then you know, I don't think that's good enough. I think you just need to understand from the people that are gonna use the product, what are their challenges? What are their pain points of why they, they want to use it in the first instance? And really understand and empathize and be on the same plane as them because that's the part that will keep you pushing forward when things are difficult. Fantastic. And uh, if we're going to buy a product from you today, what's your what's your favorite right now? Um, we have an amazing Kenyan product, which is called uh, Zest for Life, um, which you can buy in either Sainsbury's or Tesco's um, or on our website. Um, uh, also, serious tissues as a toilet roll. Um, you know, one fifth of all the world's deforestation is because of toilet paper um, in a time that we should be planting more trees to reduce carbon emissions, then you know we're cutting down more trees for toilet paper, and um, and tw we, we flush down the toilet twenty five thousand trees a day just for toilet roll. You know why not buy an ethical alternative made in the UK? Um, we always see these bamboo products that are um, and, and they're great on paper. Excuse the pun, but they're great. Um, but they're they're all made in China, and I think um, until they're made in the UK or grown locally, then you know using recycled paper to kind of it, it is absolutely great. So yeah. Coffee and toilet roll, the two things that I think we can really personally make a difference with. And I've just realised the other reason, of course, uh, the reason why Sir Richard Branson's a fan is that you're a pun <laughs> addict in all your branding. For serious tissues and change, please, I can't wait till you, Jamal, are uh, the face of Dragon's Den and the impact of the future version of uh, business investing. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Ben.